which I'm very sorry that you have to put up with me again. It's a real pity. Uh, just to say, that teen church um, thing, we're not sure exactly what to call it, and we're trying to have like soft boundaries to it, because we're aware that there's some like 11 about to turn 12, so like kids' church is too young for me, and there's some sort of 15-year-olds who are also like, hey, I'd love to join. It's not like a hard fix thing. So if you feel like it's the right thing for you or your kid or your nephew or niece, go along, see, and, and, and make it work. We don't have every age group waxed, but we're just trying to grow a little bit into that thing. So I think, yeah, do come along to that. And then uh, love from Dave and Sam. He's not sure what he's got, but he is 100% sure that his daughter's getting married next weekend. And so he's like, I really don't want to risk not being at that because he feels like it was slightly more important than coming to say hello to you guys. But if you don't know Dave and Sam, um, they're real stakeholders and shareholders in the story of Olive Tree Kloof. So when we launched up here, I think nine years ago now, um, it was in their back garden that they were hosting. And so Dave and Sam have been you know, um, involved from day one. They, they're now up on the North Coast. And he's so desperate to come say hello and preach. So I said, hey, we'll get you back on the roster another time, but get your daughter's wedding sorted as priority one. So you stuck with me. Apologies if you came here all excited to hear Dave. Right, so, so last week we started this, um, this series on the kingdom of God um, called What on Earth is God Doing? Or What's God Doing on Earth? And, and if you missed it, um, more than ever, I would encourage you to hop onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts and just get the framework for why the kingdom of God is so important. Um, my quick one sentence summary is there's no better way to answer the question, what's the plan? What's God doing? Why are things the way they are on earth? Um, than to understand the kingdom and what he's promised he's going to do. And so there's real peace and power at the end of understanding the kingdom and the king. Um, but if you missed last week, I'd encourage you just to, to catch up. It's about a half an hour podcast. So last week, it was, we started with what on earth is God doing? And today we asked the question, well, who's in charge around here? What's this king all about? Let's understand him a little bit more. Um, it's always been God's plan to establish a kingdom. I'm not going to recap that. And we saw last week what's really important is that we believe in this theology of the kingdom now, which Jesus said the kingdom is here, it's arrived, it's at hand, it's knocking on the door, and at the same time a kingdom delayed and still to come. Um, the nuance of that is not so much... Uh, I wish I could get, give up here and go, here's the exact equation why some people get healed and some people don't, why um, evil seems to prevail in some places and not in others. But more importantly than the answer is the presence of God that goes with us through this age while we journey from Jesus coming the first time to Jesus coming the second time. Uh, quickly, next week, Mr. Hazel is going to be preaching on uh, how do you get the good life? If we're going to try and navigate life on earth, yeah, what's the quickest path to the good life that all of us are looking for? And the answer to that, not to give away too much of a spoiler, is there's no kingdom blessings without the king. And so he's going to be preaching to us next week. But today the question is this, how do we know Jesus is king? And what kind of king is he? Like we really need to understand, again, whoever's on the throne either fills us with a whole lot of hope and peace and excitement or it fills us with dread. And so what kind of king are we actually Looking at it, it's really important to answer that question because if I'm going to give someone rule and reign over my life, over my thoughts, over my time, over my finances, because that's kind of the invitation to Christianity, come die to self and come make Jesus the king, the ruler and the authority over every single aspect of our lives, I really want to double click and, and dig down and make sure that he's a good king who's going to do a good job of being in charge, right? 
Maybe for you this morning, accepting Jesus as the good king is really easy for you. Maybe um, him as king and lord of your life, it just makes sense. You've seen all the fruit. But maybe like me, you're a little bit more skeptical and you want to ask the question, well, you know, who made you king? And my brain always goes to the Monty Python and the Holy Grail movie. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? King Arthur riding along with the coconuts, pretending to be the horse, and he comes to the peasants and he says, hi, you know, whose castle is that? And like, who are you? Well, I'm the king. It's like, well, I didn't vote for you to be king. How did you become king? And he says, well, you know, the lady of the lake um, threw Excalibur to me and, and, and told me I'm going to be king. She's like, a lady lying in some water, throwing swords at people, is no way to decide who's king over my life. And so we want to ask the question, how did Jesus actually become king? How, if he's going to declare himself the government and the ruler and the king over our lives, then we, got, we want to make really sure we know what he is like. Okay, so how do we know that Jesus is king? Well, we touched on it a little bit last week. But others told us that he is the king. Other secular writers and historians who were capturing this thing believed that Jesus believed he was the king. And so we read in non-Christian and Christian literature alike that this man was known as the king of the Jews. And from day one, the wise men looking for him announced before Herod at the time, where is this one who's been born the king of the Jews? And above Jesus' cross, the inscription, whether sarcastic or not, said the king of the Jews. The wise men from day one... And Pilate, at his final breath, took it seriously that Jesus was claiming to be king. And so history, others tell us that Jesus is king. Okay, so that's part one. But secondly, and it's easy to miss this as you read the New Testament, Jesus told us really clearly that he's the king. Even though if you Google the phrase, or Bible Gateway, the, the phrase, I am the king, it's not exactly as overt as that. But covertly, look at what Jesus is saying. Now, to take a little bit of a history step back, you've got to go, the person in charge over the whole area at that time, uh, Caesar Augustus, used to have these amazing claims that he would make. Um, his father died at the same time as there was this kind of asteroid that uh, tore through earth, and so there was like this kind of, what's going on here, are the gods angry? That would have been the question. And so what he did quite cleverly is he went, oh, did you see that asteroid that happened, that huge fireball in the sky? What that was, was that was my father ascending to be with the gods in heaven. One day, I, your new God, will ascend to be with my father. I'm going to go with my, to be with my father in heaven. It's something that Caesar Augustus proclaimed. Other things that he would say, after victories in battle, he'd take over a new town or a new kingdom, and he'd say, the kingdom of Rome is here. The kingdom, my kingdom, is forcefully advancing. And what he'd do is, once he'd wiped out all the kind of soldiers, he'd go in with food for days, and he'd take these huge amounts of fresh bread, and he'd say things like, I am your God, I am the bread of life. Come and eat of my kingdom. This is starting to sound a little bit familiar about who else would say these sort of things. He'd say to them when he arrived, the old kingdom is gone, the new kingdom has arrived. I am the good news that you have been waiting for. Caesar Augustus was violently taking over the world around him at the same time that Jesus arrived and said some very specific things. The king has arrived. I'm on earth with you now for a bit, but one day I'm going to ascend to be with my father in heaven. Come to me. I'm going to feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. I am the bread of life. I am the good news. My kingdom will advance. It is very provocative. It seems like just we read it now and we're like, oh, cool, Jesus is feeding people. But it would have been very provocative to the people in the day because he was going, hang on a second. That's what the king ruling over this thing has said. Jesus is making the same claims. And so Jesus culturally was very much proclaiming himself to be king, but also prophetically. So, so he's doing it in terms of history and secular culture, but he's doing it also in terms of prophetic Old Testament culture. Jesus is claiming to be king. And so I want to give you one little 
passage from the book of Matthew, and in it are all these references to the promised Savior King that the people had been waiting for. So Jesus would say things like this, the kingdom of God is here, it's arrived, when he'd walk into town and then he'd preach and he'd heal people and he'd provide and he'd set up shop in that town for a while. He, he corrected people as he was teaching, saying, you've heard it said that the kingdom of God is like this, but I want to tell you it's actually like that. And we'll look at that a little bit later, how he corrects and rewires our thinking. But one story from Matthew chapter 21 will be up on the screen. Um, when they, Jesus and his followers, had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village across from you and immediately there you'll find a donkey tied and a colt alongside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately they will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And I'm going to jump ahead in the story here. Jesus rides into town, and he arrives at the temple, and he finds a marketplace that's been set up to con people. And so he drives the people out of his temple. And then he goes outside, and he heals the sick, and then he invites a group of children to come and be with him. And why that's really important is because in that one little story from Matthew chapter 1, there's four different references to the Old Testament Messiah King that they've been waiting for. In Zechariah chapter 9, Jesus, it's, we're told that Jesus would, uh, the king would arrive riding on a donkey into his hometown, which is what Jesus done. We're told in Isaiah chapter 56, the Messiah King will cleanse his temple and drive the evil out of it, and Jesus does this in this story. We're told in Isaiah 35 and a bunch of other places that Jesus will declare his kingship and his kingdom by the healing of the sick. And we're told that you'll know that the Savior King has arrived by the way he responds to little children, uh, Psalm chapter 8. Can you see what Jesus is doing the whole time? Everything he's saying, everything he's doing is announcing to the people of God and the people who don't know God, the King is here. And so not only did others deeply believe that Jesus was King, but Jesus deeply believed that Jesus was king. And finally, he doesn't just talk about being the king. He demonstrates the kingdom every single day of his life in ministry. Only the Savior King can say things like, you are healed from a lifelong affliction and sickness and actually see healing happen. Only the Savior King could forgive sins and debt. I mean, imagine the scandal of going, your debts against everyone on earth are forgiven because the king has forgiven you. And so he demonstrates the kingdom by miracles and by teaching and, of course, by ultimately being the king that would go to the cross and overcome sin and death through the cross and resurrection. But I, I want to kind of zoom in on the fact that in doing this, Jesus is not just showing that he is the king, and that's good news for us, but he's telling us the kind of king that he is. And it's such a mind-boggling, upside-down kind of king, so different to the rulers that the people of the day were used to, and I think maybe so different to some of the things that we are used to in our lives. So he's a king that's so unbelievably full of confidence. He so believes in who God's made him to be and the authority he has, but he's so full of compassion. That's different, right? In fact, in one place in the Scripture, it says Jesus is so deeply moved that he gets stomach aches. His stomach is aching as he looks upon the sick and the suffering and then prays for them to be healed. This is not just a demonstration of 
power, which is amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful display of godly compassion and tenderness and mercy. There's so much power, but with it so much gentleness. All the authority of heaven and earth, and yet so much humility. And every right this king has to be exclusive and go, well, I'm only going to be around those who deserve to be around me. And he spends his day in and day out eating meals and holding hands and laying hands and being with sinners and sufferers. I kind of ask the question, like, what kind of king would I be? If power and authority and everything I needed and all the resources of earth and heaven were kind of given to me, what would I do? Maybe you, like me, would spend a whole lot more time wielding, wielding it to get our way, lording it over people, controlling and trying to set up that good life that God's going to preach to us about it next week. But Jesus, as the king, is leaning into the sickness and the suffering and the death and the pain of this world. He's beautiful. Matthew chapter 11, it's the only place that I can find in the New Testament when it tells us what the heart of the king is like. He says it himself, come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my burden upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The king of heaven and earth, the one with all the power and authority, come to me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The one place in the I'm going to read now from Gentle and Lowly, um, a beautiful book that we've quoted a couple times in the last few weeks. It's the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. We are not told that he is austere and demanding. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous, although those things are true. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim, he is gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. Right at the very heart of our king, this compassionate, gentle, beautiful, powerful God. And so Jesus gets told, but we're told by others, Jesus is king, we're told by Jesus, I believe I'm the king. And then we're demonstrated to both the power and the peace of the kingdom, both the strength and the gentleness, both the superiority of the kingdom and the lowly of heart of the king. And then what he invites us to do, and we'll spend the rest of the morning here, is he invites us to come to the king, like those little children, to become like the king. Come to your king, because I will make you like me. The king that we chase after, the kind of power that we look for, the thing that we worship and set our minds and hearts at, is the kind of king we become. Does that make sense? The thing we're following, the one we're chasing after, is the one we're going to become like. And other kings in this world, rulers in this world, invite us to be dominated, to bow and scrape in fear, to, be, to bend to their will and what they want us to be. We are invited to the king to become more like him, to rule and reign in peace in our business and our civic life and our families, to think along the lines of justice and peace and righteousness with every decision that we make, to administer power but also peace, to administer joy and also compassion. And what an invitation to come to our king today to become like our king. How, how does he do that? How, how do we do that? How do we start 
to model ourselves after this beautiful King Jesus that we see in these stories. Well, the first thing Jesus does is he starts to rewire the way we think. It's one of the fundamentals to our Christian faith. As we arrive exactly as we are, we don't have to unburden ourselves of our sin or our bad ways of thinking or our brokenness. We arrive exactly as we are. But when we accept Christ, we accept it on the condition that he wants to rewire our hearts and rewire our brains. We are transformed in Christ by making our minds new, thinking more and more like he does. And we are transformed in our hearts by feeling things like he does, like compassion and gentleness, at the same time as stewarding this magnificent authority and power. And so 15 times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus says this to the people listening to him. You've heard it said that the kingdom will be like this, but I want to flip it on its head and tell you that it's way more like this. Who inherits the kingdom? How it works, how we should exercise our authority and power we've been given is so different to the way that followers of Jesus thought it would be, and it's different to the way many of us live. The kingdom of God in our lives, the kingdom of God reigning in our families and in our church and and our workplace starts with thinking more and more like the king. Think about the king, think what he's like, come to him and start to be transformed to think like the king. And it's this beautiful difference between a king who tells you what to do and a king who shows you how to think. It's a comprehensive plan to transform us from the inside out. This beautiful Jesus heals and rescues us from brokenness in our thinking and in the way that we operate and go about our day. And then he puts his mind in us. He puts our new mind in us and puts our heart in us and says, start to think and start to see how the king sees and I will transform you from the inside out. Now, I was starting to get to this point in the sermon, and I thought, well, let me go to some of those parables and show uh, some of the Beatitudes and show us how Jesus flips the kingdom on his head. But I think a better invitation would be to say, go yourselves in this week and read Matthew chapter 5 and, and the Beatitudes, and you'll see a bunch of these examples. But I started thinking, it's quite hard to throw Jesus up there and go, why don't you start to think like Jesus, right? Because it's like, oh, gee, thanks. Nice low bar there. But the beautiful thing about the, some of the Old Testament stories is we see these normal people getting full of the Holy Spirit and we get an example of what it might look like to actually think and act the way Jesus does. And so I want to take us instead to the book of Daniel and two places in Daniel. A quick summary is he's a person trying to follow God well and diligently in the middle of this what seems like evil and chaos all around him. He's an exile who is trying to follow faithfully his God, but everything around him, including his name and where he lives and what he's told to do, is like trying to shape him away from God. And so Daniel prays a prayer in chapter Daniel 2, and then Daniel gets a reputation in Daniel chapter 5, and I'm going to read those two pieces of scripture quickly. Daniel chapter 2, as he's trying to be this God follower in the middle of evil and chaos around him, says this, Praise be to the name of God, Forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. He's the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. He knows about those things, but the light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to me the dreams of the king. So Daniel, in this specific situation, is praying for this wisdom to problem solve, for the Holy Spirit to speak to him, to give him the answer that he needs for this specific situation. 
Now, your situation might look different as we prayed for people in business this morning as you're facing whatever you're facing, but the prayer can be the same. If we allow ourselves to ask for the God of wisdom and power, then this is where we may end up in terms of reputation and the dream that I have for the kind of church that we want to be. There's a, quite an evil queen in this kingdom, and her evil husband, who was the first person who Daniel uh, interpreted and problem-solved for through the Holy Spirit, has passed away, and now the son is becoming the second evil king. And Daniel's still faithfully plodding along, following God, going, God, would you use me? And the queen says this to her son, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy God inside of him. In the, time when your father, in the time of your father, he, Daniel, was found to have great insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief over the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, he took away his very name and identity of being rooted in Christ and tried to root him in this new evil kingdom. But that very Daniel who prayed that prayer was found to have a keen mind, knowledge, and understanding, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Isn't that amazing? You draw that straight line from the prayer Daniel was praying to the authority and the, the reputation Daniel started to have in the community. The Spirit of God, if we allow Him, if we will pray for wisdom and power and acknowledge that insight and, and, and problem-solving comes from God, will help us to move from being great namers of problems to great solvers of problems, right? The Spirit of God, if we allow Him, will move us from being powerless to being powerful. And here's the thing about powerlessness. I had a week this week where I'll just say two things that I had to do. I had to sort out licensing and a visa from our municipality, and I had to... Um, do one other bit of admin in terms of like sorting out a broken car. Those are two days in a row. Do you, can you imagine the joy and the Holy Spirit prayers that I was praying in those combined 12 hours of sitting in queues waiting for things to happen? So we're coming to like a kingdom problem-solving week this week, and I thought if I'm going to challenge you guys, I need to keep like a little record of my grumbling and mumbling this week. And I got to 47 and stopped counting on Friday. So I'm in a little bit of trouble, and I'm like the paid Christian, Right? But here's the thing, when our thought life and when our spoken word is so full of muttering and grumbling and blaming and problem naming, it is so hard to be hearing the Holy Spirit for creative problem solving. It is so hard to hear the compassion and tender gentleness of God speaking to us, right? Because we're filling ourselves, we're filling our minds and our hearts with the brokenness of the kingdom around us rather than filling our minds with the Holy Spirit going, God, would you speak to me? I see the problem. We're not trying to be ostriches. We're not trying to go, well, I'm not sitting in a queue for eight hours waiting to get this license done. I am. But imagine what it could look like if I'm starting to be prayerful and problem solving and going, God, would you come in and use this moment for my wisdom and insight and for power and peace to be administered somehow on earth? When we start to use our prayer life, our preaching, the, the, the things that are coming into our ears and bouncing around our heads and the things we're speaking, we start to see transformation. It moves us away from powerlessness to powerfulness. And the Spirit of God takes us from things like daydreaming, imagine we could get out of this situation, to dreaming with God and interpreting dreams and problem solving like we see in the book of Daniel. And the beautiful thing that we see 
from the prophet Joel and arriving in Jesus is our young men and our old men, our young women and our old women can be full of the Holy Spirit for what? Dreams and vision. Problem solving for the kingdom of God to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60, male or female, young or old. It doesn't matter if you spent your whole life training yourself to see problems and mumble about them and grumble about them. And your thoughts and your mind are so full of it, you're like, I could never start to reverse that. The beautiful power of the cross of Jesus is he gives you a new mind and heart and says, now start to think like me. Start to feel like me. Start to live like me. Come to the king regularly and I will make you more and more like the king. You've heard it said that things look like this, but I want to tell you they could be like that. The good king thinks so differently to us and invites us to start to do the same. And then our last thought after our thinking transforms is this. The good king serves and lives so differently to us and invites us to do the same. If I was to ask you for a little exercise to picture the most powerful person in the earth right now, who pops into your head? Well, I believe that's ever lived, it was Jesus. And the night before his death, the night before he's finally finishing his life on earth, he's had three years of ministry to transform the world for the rest of eternity. What does he do with his last moments? He washes his disciples' feet. He prays for his friends and for you and me. He encourages their hearts and says, I'm going to leave you with peace. And he warns them to not wander into danger. I don't know what I would have done with my last night of power and authority and everything, all the resources of heaven, but I know what the King Jesus does. With all that facing up to the enemy, the weight of sin and brokenness staring him in the face, the King of the Jews and the King of you and me lays down his life for his friends. And the thing that it starts to show us about becoming more and more like our King is that in fact the most powerful person in any room, in any relationship, in any situation, in any bit of brokenness is the one with the spirit of the king who serves inside of them. And why I wanted to end there this morning is this little phrase that we've used in olive trees for 15 years now is, God, would you help us to think like kings and lead like servants? Would you help us to think like kings and and act and, and pray and serve like servants? And this is so countercultural and counterintuitive to the good life that you and I want because what's the pinnacle of power and success in a country like South Africa? I become served by everyone everywhere I go. I'm served at work. I'm served at home. I'm served in church. church. Oh, look at me, the powerful pastor. Who's going to serve me? Who's going to serve me? Put your hands up. Just kidding. Volunteers serve me at church. I'm served at home by my family and and workers. I'm served in my business. That is success because now I'm going to have the time and the space to exercise my kingdom authority. How do I get others to pray for me? How do I get others to lay down their life for me? Are questions that unfortunately in my carnality regularly bounce around in my subconscious. But Christ, the king, Christ, my king, Christ, your king, washes feet, breaks bread, approaches the rejected, goes into the wrong homes, and dies as the servant of all. Great power and peace comes from thinking like the king and then starting to serve like the king. And I think I, along with most of us, need to have a little moment of repentance this morning because many of us know the king and have experienced the king, and many of us think and speak and live so differently to the king. And I don't think there's any healing and peace and joy to be found outside of living with the king, like the king. 
Let's come to him this morning to become more and more like him. Can I ask us to stand together and pray together? Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you once again. And we want to say that in this church and in our hearts, we want to acknowledge you and worship you as the king with permission to rule and reign over every part of our church and our city and our lives. We believe that you're seated on the throne and in charge, and it's such a good thing. We believe in you as the savior king who can rescue us out of the kingdom of darkness and brokenness and take us into lack. And we believe that you're the good, kind king. And God, where our hearts and where our minds have been so full of the wrong kind of kingdom and the wrong kind of king, Lord, I thank you that there's power and mercy and gentleness to forgive that today. And Lord, we invite you to speak to us, to give us the minds of the king that in our businesses, for those we prayed for earlier, Lord, we'd start to think the thoughts of heaven with creative problem solving and solutions and interpreting of riddles and dreams. And we'd be known, we'd become known for the wisdom and the power and the peace and mercy with which we're leading our businesses and staff. God, would you do that in our lives? Would you do that in our hearts at home, in our marriages? For those of us who are single, for those of us raising kids, Lord, would you fill us with the mind of the King and help us to serve like Him this morning? We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.